Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And it's a new year. We're back from a hiatus and we are chomping slash champing at the microphone to bring you fresh content. Um, but before we do, we have a whole bunch of new patrons and donors to thank. Like, Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Even when we were on hiatus, yeah, y'all joined. That's amazing. So many, many thanks to Manuel, Jackson, Kara, Teppo, Elizabeth, Tori, Michelle, Jimmy, and Brenna for your support. And just a note, if you um, subscribe on Patreon and you have a username that's like your handle and it's something funny and we don't see your real name, uh, we're going to read the funny handle. So Michelle, if you would have preferred that we say mice hell, yeah, uh, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> Uh, but thank you all so much for your support, even during a month when we were taking time off from regular content. You're all terrific. And if you'd like to join this ever-growing club, you can do so with either a monthly or an annual pledge or a one-time donation. There's a little bit of a discount if you'd like to either join or roll over your existing pledge. But either way, we are thrilled for the support. And speaking of thrilled, listeners, thank you so much to all of you who have left us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Even though we've been going for a little more than two and a half years now, those still help us out a huge amount. So go leave one if you haven't yet, and that'll help other folks find us so we can share stories from the ancient past to all, for everyone. Um, please, and thank you. Yeah, uh, and we are also excited to announce an upcoming live show. What? So, um, as part of the American Anthropological Association's Anthro Day festivities this year, we will be performing a live show on Zoom on February 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern. So that's uh, GMT minus five. Go register for your seat now over at thedirtpod.com slash Anthro Day 2021. Yeah, it's free. You just you just got to register a spot. Yeah, just register. So we get your coming. seats. Invite other people. Um, and yeah. if you if you can't make it, you'll be able to like if it's like the literal middle of the night for you. Um, that's OK. We'll, we'll we're, we'll we're sorry it. about how time works. Yeah. But you'll still get to see it. Just not like. Yep. So yep. Whew, that was a lot of housekeeping. Um, so now let's get back to our regularly scheduled program. Um, mm-hmm. So on one of our last episodes before the break. So back in episode 120, I was your guide for a trip to Arabia. While Anna kind of bumbled along with me and learned things, sometimes for the second <laughs> time. Um, so yep. this time, <laughs> as we, often are, happens. we are firmly in Anna's wheelhouse and it's my turn to be the audience surrogate for I know. So nice. I learned it twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all going to learn stuff today because the last time I really read or thought about this particular site was at the beginning of my time in grad school a million years ago. But since we're talking about pre-sapiens members of the genus Homo today, yes, I will be the Virgil to your Dante. Oh, awesome. The Norgay to your Hillary. Okay. Eh, 
I had to Google like famous guides. Oh, geez. Well, because I I know, well, those were the two that I had already thought of. And then the other options were like the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. And I was like, nah. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't like that. This week, we are visiting the site of Boxgrove, located in what is today Sussex, England. Today, the site is on a flat coastal plain several miles from the sea to the south and a mile from the low foothills of the South Downs to the north. (laughs) South Downs to the north. Great. Half a million years ago, however, the site lay at the foot of chalk cliffs 200 meters high, which have since been totally eroded. Uh, When the sea level fell, I know. I know, I know about chalk. It was a deep cuts episode, though, that we talked about. How chalk do? Yeah. Or was that a regular thing? Okay, I don't know. I remember. Well, it's, it's going to come up again. Great. Don't I'm going to learn about chalk again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to Chalk Talk. No? Is that anything? Okay. When the sea level fell, a broad grassy plain soon evolved, a rich habitat for animals and early man. Early people. And it's early person that makes Boxgrove such an important site because the remains found here are attributed not to Homo sapiens, but our earlier relatives, Homo heidelbergensis, dating again to around 500,000 years ago. Not so bef- Sasquatch. Super not a Sasquatch. Just. Mm-hmm. Uh, so before we actually arrive at Boxgrove, let's take a quick detour to talk about Homo heidelbergensis, since it's been, if you can believe it, nearly a hundred episodes since our series on hominin evolution. Like, and actually... Human evolution has changed since we recorded that episode. Yeah, so we're <laughs> going to have to put out a whole new series soon, because there have been so many new finds and updates. Oh, man. Like, I mean, for great. a bunch of hominins that aren't getting any deader, we're sure learning more about them. Yeah. It's comforting. I guess. Homo heidelbergensis is thought to have descended from African Homo erectus, sometimes classified as Homo ergaster. So, Amber, do you remember this? Mm. Mm-hmm. So there's, yeah, so there's mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of two ends to the spectrum of Homo erectus, which is the populations that originated in Africa and then those that stayed in Africa mm-hmm. are typically, you we use Homo ergaster for that. And then erectus are the the groups that traveled outside of Africa. So when you find remains elsewhere, it's Homo erectus. But generally those those groups share most of the same attributes. So that um, expansion happened out of Africa around 2 million years ago. A lot of times you'll see 1.8 million years ago, but close enough. The <laughs> first fossil of Homo heidelbergensis, Mauer 1, which is a jawbone, a mandible, was discovered by a worker in Mauer, Mm -hmm. to the southeast of Heidelberg in Germany in 1907. And it was formally described and and published the next year by German anthropologist Otto Schuttensack, who made it the type specimen of a new species, Homo heidelbergensis, so named for Heidelberg. Mm -hmm. He created a new species primarily because of the mandible's archaicness, in particular its enormous size, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, and it was then the oldest human jaw in the European fossil record at 640,000 years old. Wow. So tell me more about that chomper. Okay. Well, apart from its overall size, the Mauer jaw had other unique features that were described early on, quite formally. In particular, (laughs) the lack of a chin. Or if you want to sound fancy, a mental eminence and the wide flaring mandibular ramus. So these are the sides of the jaw that come up towards the ears were a very Mm -hmm. different from human jaw structure. Um, Despite the uh, 
technical term, chonkiness of the jaw, okay. uh, the teeth were relatively similar to human teeth in their size and shape. This is important because it provides a major contrast to the jaw of the Piltdown Man that was discovered by Charles Dawson. So remember, folks, Piltdown Man was spoiler. a hoax. Yeah, spoiler for an episode <laughs> we did a billion years ago. Um, and is one of the pe- reasons people, European people, um, gobbled up that hoax is because A, the specimen was found in Britain, ostensibly meaning that the cradle of humanity was right where white people wanted it to be. And B, yep. the skull was big, but the teeth were much more primitive and ape-like, which would indicate that we big-brained humans evolved from equally big-brained ancient ancestors, and the shape of our the human shape of our teeth and jaw evolved later. As it turns out, neither of these was the case. Our earliest ancestors were small-brained, hairy little guys that originated in Africa. Yep. So Despite the fact that several more specimens identified as Homo heidelbergensis have been found since 1907, the classification and relationship of this species to other hominins is still a matter of debate. So uh, let's play a quick round of Translate That Science with an excerpt from Katerina Harvati's 100 Years of Homo heidelbergensis, Life and Times of a Controversial Taxon. Cool. <laughs> it's a good title. <clears throat> After the extensive pruning of the nomenclature of the human evolutionary tree, according to the principles of the modern synthesis, the nomen Homo heidelbergensis fell increasingly into disuse. An influential interpretation of the fossil record of this time saw the Maurjaw and its European and African contemporaries as very early forms of Homo sapiens. As such, they were gathered together with Neanderthals and other middle to late Pleistocene human forms in the same grade and collectively referred to as archaic Homo sapiens. In this view, Maurer and the other middle to late Pleistocene specimens, including Neanderthals, were loosely considered as ancestral archaic forms belonging to our species rather than to Homo erectus, but retaining many plesiomorphic erectus-like features. They were grouped together based on what was perceived to be a similar level of adaptation or grade. This grade classification of archaic Homo sapiens acknowledged affinities with later Homo, but did not confront the thorny issue of the precise phylogenetic relationships and alpha taxonomy of these specimens. Okay, time for translate. (laughs) (laughs) Plesiomorphic. Flipper-shaped? What's a plesi? Plesia. What please? So plesiomorphic... Yeah, yes. so like near form, so basically an ancestral form of an existing morphology. Okay. So an earlier form of characteristics, physical characteristics that you see later on. So to translate, I mean, really, and it's still called this, the the kind of classification of all of these species that are happening and, and existing and kind of kicking it around two million years ago is called the muddle in the middle. because. What? Yeah, it's it's that, refer- is that refer- that sounds like a title of an episode of Bones. <laughs> it totally does. It very well maybe. <laughs> I sort of stopped watching around season four. <laughs> no, it's um, it, it's a reference to um what I'm going to talk about now, which is the fact that there is still a lot that we don't know and that no one can agree on in terms of the taxonomic relationships between Homo heidelbergensis modern humans, Homo erectus, and Neanderthals. And so the sort of who comes from whom and sort of 
where these species go if they are indeed distinct species mm-hmm. um sort of on the the hominin family tree is is still a muddle um and and there seems to be a lot of debate still so the reason that this issue is still so thorny is because there is still on this ongoing debate about whether or not Homo heidelbergensis is the last common ancestor between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. So based on DNA analysis and the molecular clock, which you remember that, remember how that works, Amber? Um, yeah, it's it's how close we are to nuclear annihilation, right? <laughs> Constantly ticking. No, in this case, the molecular clock is the idea that uh, DNA undergoes change at more or less a constant rate over time. So by counting the number of differences genetically uh, between the genomes. Have you of ever told me this before? I have. I've mentioned it on the, because. Did I just like black out? <laughs> you may have, because I, I did say that um, it was developed at Berkeley. The idea was developed at Berkeley and you may have gone, Oh no, goodbye. Uh, by a guy named Vince Sarich and his colleagues. But yeah, so it's the idea that because genetic change, it, it occurs randomly. Genetic change occurs uh-huh. randomly, but generally changes in the genome occur um, at a consistent rate over time, even though the individual changes are random, like the the rate of accumulation mm-hmm. is constant over time. And so Sarich et al. worked out sort of a number of genetic differences that was equal to 1 million years. So basically that, by... Like, is that the case for just like everything that has DNA or is it for I us? Believe so. or... I believe so. I know specifically it pertains to the hominin and hominid lineage, which includes the great apes. So it stands to reason that it works the same way for everything else. Yeah. I'm sure there are instances where where genetic change is accelerated. Sorry, I didn't understand why I would have forgotten this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It maybe uh, (laughs) triggered a salami incident. But basically the molecular clock is a way of telling how long ago two species shared a, a common ancestor based on the number of differences in the base pairs in their genome. So the number of differences genetically that they have from one another is directly correlated with the amount of time it's been since they were last immediately related. So based on that, we know that we share an ancestor with Neanderthals, which is kind of like if you have cousins, you share a set of grandparents with them. Uh And if you have blood cousins by blood, you share a set of grandparents, same idea, but sort of transposed into species um, that was kicking around around 600,000 years ago, which is exactly when Homo heidelbergensis were doing their thing. But like I mentioned, the hominin picture from that time is incredibly muddled. The, you know, it's, it's hard to get an exact picture of what was going on when you're missing a ton of the information. And that's the big problem with the, the fossil record is that it's very fragmentary. So the more evidence we get, the more complex the picture becomes. Oh, so it's not so like getting read... easier. It's getting harder. Yeah. Ah, cool. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to read an excerpt from an article in The New Scientist, and it dates from April 1st, 2020, but it's not a hoax, I promise. So two studies of ancient humans have shed new light on the last common ancestor we share with Neanderthals, an extinct species that was once in the frame, our boy Heidelbergensis, now looks unlikely to be the one. Another now seems more plausible, but it may only be related to the ancestor. Chris Stringer of the Natural History Museum in London said, quote, my guess is we haven't found the common ancestor yet, end quote. However, the new findings clarify what the common ancestor may have looked like. Stringer's team studied a skull called Cobway 1, which when someone was first telling me about this specimen, I misheard them and for an embarrassingly long time thought that the name of the specimen was Cowboy 1. So you're right, you're picked Cowboy 1. <laughs> yep. Oh. 
<laughs> That's something I would do. Well, you know, shortly after that, I saw it written down and went, oh. <laughs> but Kabwe one, which was discovered in 1921 by miners at Broken Hill in what is now Zambia. And so Chris Stringer goes on to say, quote, it was the first important hominin fossil found in Africa. It probably belonged to a young male and had a primitive looking face with huge brow ridges over the eyes. Is he stressed? End quote. <laughs> he wrinkled his forehead too mm. much and it got stuck like that. No, uh, just big old bony ridges over the eyes. Many anthropologists place Cabwe 1 in Homo heidelbergensis, which ranged across Africa and Europe between about 700,000 and 300,000 years ago. It has long been a candidate for the common ancestor of three later groups, modern humans, hello, Homo sapiens, the Neanderthals of Europe and West Asia, and the Denisovans of East Asia. However, until now, the Cabwe skull's age has been a mystery. The normal approach is to date the surrounding sediments, says Rainer Grün of Griffith University in Australia. But the skull was found by accident, and then the site was quarried out, so researchers have no sediments to test. The general assumption has been that the skull is about 500,000 years old, but it has not been possible to assess that idea properly. So Grun says, quote, The only thing we can do is to analyze the skull itself. This is only now possible. Older methods would have required drilling into the skull, causing unacceptable damage. The word unacceptable is in quotes here because like that's what the the museum and and like researchers would deem unacceptable but like opinions. <laughs> Instead, the team used lasers to remove fragments a quarter of a millimeter thick and I think this procedure is called laser ablation. Analyses of these fragments indicate Cabway 1 is about 299,000 years old. The age of Cabway 1 means the skull probably didn't belong to an ancestor of humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans, says Chris Stringer. Genetic evidence suggests instead the last common ancestor lived about 600,000 years ago, so Cabway 1 is too recent. There's also evidence that modern humans were present in northern Africa 300,000 years ago, about the same time that this other specimen, Cabway 1, was alive, so that <laughs> means that the idea that this is a human ancestor is unlikely. It's like you're born at the same time as your own grandpa. So Stringer said, quote, we reassess it as a separate line of evolution, but one which probably coexisted with the evolution of Homo sapiens. End quote. Lauren Schroeder at the University of Toronto says, quote, it shows that there were tons, Canadian oh, tons, <laughs> of different hominins running around in Africa 300,000 years ago, which I always, you know, when I teach, I always stress this to my students is that just because we are now the only extant hominins. And I, Amber, I'm sorry, no. I know this gives you agita, but there were multiple species of hominins around at the same time the that probably ones. encountered one another as this evolution was happening. And just because we currently are the only extant hominins on earth, uh, doesn't mean that it was always that way. So it's, it's weird to think of other, you know, us, but not us hominins roaming around, but that's the way it was. So I have to deal with it. (laughs) So that's what you're saying. You're going to have to deal with it. It just, it, I cannot change the past. That's, that's what was going on. So instead of a simple progression from one species to the next, many groups coexisted and sometimes interbred. And this was a process that was probably happening all throughout Africa, which listeners, we probably need not remind you, but we will anyway, is very, very big. So big. This means Homo heidelbergensis did not simply evolve into modern humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans, which was the, the general consensus a while ago before the, all this new evidence. Uh, 
Although it is theoretically possible that one small group of Heidelborgensis in existence around 700,000 years ago could have been the common ancestor of later humans. So it's not just one population morphing into the next. Here's a meme for you to use. You can have like um, Lord of the Rings guy doing the Italian fingers. And saying, one does not simply evolve into modern humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans. <laughs> so to translate, Boromir. Thank you. Doing the one does not simply walk into Mordor. <laughs> Sean Bean in his role as Boromir. See, so I, managed I, to, I managed to express no, you that with there. like the most low information description okay. of that meme. You speak co-host. <laughs> I, if so, I had to guess, I would have said Boromir. So at least there's that. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, Cowboy One isn't the ancestor of modern humans, but there is another species that is a contender. And... We will come back to that. So that's our detour into Homo heidelbergensis and a cliffhanger. But before that, now that we have something of a better idea about who we're talking about, let's have a quick ad break and then get back to Boxgrove. So it's um, it's a chalk cliffhanger. It's a chalk cliffhanger, which I don't recommend. Too crumbly. Oh, Not safe. God. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturalmedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Well, we're back. We're back at those cliffs. Ooh. Um, great. Well, the cliffs don't exist anymore, so it's okay. So, you're um, on ground, sea level. (laughs) I'm, (laughs) I'm going to be reading now from the Boxgrove Project blog, um, which is actually written by members of the project. It's not like a fan site. Yeah, no, it's not a wiki. (laughs) Boxgrove.wikia.com. No, it's it's legit. I checked. In 1993, a human tibia was found at Boxgrove from a sediment overlying freshwater deposits at Q1-B. Yeah, that's that's how the unit is described. There was no better way for me to do that, so that's its name. In 1996, further hominin remains were found. Two incisor teeth from a single individual recovered from the lower freshwater deposits at the site. Those are your two front twofers. Um, Incisors. Just made a little bunny face. 
Um, <laughs> undoubtedly, further hominin finds will be made at Boxgrove and other British sites. Until then, the study of the Boxgrove finds alongside contemporary remains in Europe and Africa provide information on the lifestyle and adaptive significance of these early European colonizers. The tibia, shin bone, is so far the only postcranial element of Homo heidelbergensis to have been found in Northern Europe. So remember, postcranial meaning not part of the head, below the head. Yep. Um, it is remarkably long and came from an adult individual who stood well over 1.8 meters tall. So it's at least six foot. So yep. he put that in their gender bio. Um, it is also it is also extremely robust with an overall thickness comparable to that exhibited by the later Neanderthals. Overall, the bone suggests that Boxgrove hominins were quite massively built, combining both height and muscular strength. Beefy tall boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, this physique may have been used to great effect by the hominins in hunting and direct competition with other carnivores for carcasses. However... The tibia demonstrates that hominins were not always top of the food chain at Boxgrove. Both articular ends of this tibia have been gnawed by a carnivore, possibly a wolf. Uh, or, if we ask Danny Vendramini, a Neanderthal. <laughs> While it is impossible... But we will not ask him. <laughs> While it is impossible to determine whether this individual was preyed upon or simply had his body scavenged after death, the influence of carnivores would suggest that body parts from this individual could have been spread over a large area. The two incisors both belonged to the same individual and were found within a few meters of each other at Q1-B. The incisors exhibit the signs of severe periodontal gum disease and the traces of many small cut marks across their surface. These cut marks. Hang on. <laughs> Don't get excited. No, no. Mm-mm. I saw it and I was like, whoa. These cut marks, which are identical to those made on butchered bone by flint tools, are probably not the signs of cannibalism. Okay. Sorry. I know. What? Well, you know, this. But some repeated activity involving the use of flint tools close to the mouth. Okay. Yep. Um, similar marks are known from Neanderthal teeth and may relate to food processing activities where the mouth was employed as a third hand. Yeah. So, so in this case, um, specifically with the Neanderthals, it's like if you're eating a chunk of meat and it's, you know, it's tough instead of putting it on the ground and cutting it into small pieces and then eating those pieces, what you'd be doing is gripping the honk of meat in your teeth pulling with one hand and then cutting kind mm-hmm. of towards your teeth with a little flint tool mm-hmm. and cutting off bites that way. But sometimes the flint will nick the teeth. And mm-hmm. so you see these really distinctive little, you know, it's, it makes my teeth feel weird talking about it. Ah. But yeah. So speaking of flint tools and tools made from other materials, this is one of the coolest things about Boxgrove. So first of all, if you remember, we said at the beginning of the episode and throughout that the site is right <laughs> at the foot of chalk cliffs. So those chalk cliffs are the remains. Here we go, Amber. You can learn all over yes, again. Chalk. Welcome to Chalk Talk. <laughs> <laughs> are the remains of tiny marine organisms from millions and millions of years ago that were once deposited on the ocean floor. The skeletons of those erstwhile critters also contain tiny particles of silica. And so where there were concentrations of silica, the same massive pressure from the Earth's weight that formed the chalk turned the silica into flint. So this is over millions of years. Silica becomes flint. It does. Yep. Flint, flint, and chert um, are 
among other uh, types of rock. They're silicious, mm-hmm. which is a word I love. Mm-hmm. They're you know silica based. Oh, so that's why we have it. So um, <laughs> quick. <laughs> Aside for like basic understanding and also to brag about West Virginia. So the like Best Virginia. Best Virginia. So the salt flats that are up on the, the plateau, um, the, mm-hmm. the salt flats are from a very, 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 very ancient ocean floor. <laughs> um, yes. Because remember, the Appalachians are the oldest mountains. Um and therefore the best. The absolute best. Um and so, so you got you got flints up there. We do. We have flint and chert. I'm holding some right now. That that yeah. um, that stone point that I showed you the other day that my, oh, yeah, my yeah, dad yeah. napped. Um, that was um, so. Yeah, we have local flint, local flint, flint and chert here. Yeah, and, and that is so that the of would, marine origin. So yep. those would be those are probably associated with one another, like mm-hmm. geologically. Yeah, oh, I think so. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. The silica is deposited because it exists within those those tiny organisms. And then those deposits plus time plus a lot of pressure turns the silica into flint. And so silica, same, same sand? They're both made of silica, yes. Because sand is made from worn down rocks. And most rocks contain some sort of silica. Yeah. So the chalk cliffs at Boxgrove when they existed, contained lots of nodules of high quality flint that the inhabitants at Boxgrove turned into stone tools. And so this is from a piece at The Conversation, which we used actually uh, fairly recently in Old News, I think, or one of our one of our bonus episodes. We actually, I pulled from this same um, piece, but listeners on the main feed won't have heard it before. So hmm. this is written by Matt Pope, who is one of the researchers at Boxgrove. The most perfectly preserved area of the site is known as the Horse Butchery Site. Spoiler, it's in the name. A spot where a large horse was slaughtered and processed some 480,000 years ago. Since 1994, we've worked on bone and stone artifacts from here, some of which are the earliest in Europe, as part of a multidisciplinary team led by the University College London Institute of Archaeology. My own research, i.e. Matt Pope's research, focused on the stone artifacts, more than 1,750 pieces of napped flint. The tools, along with bones from a single large female horse, were discovered more than a quarter of a century ago, and the location of where each artifact was plotted to the nearest millimeter. This level of recording, I love this so much, was achieved without laser survey equipment and digital photography, the two mainstays of modern archaeological site recording today. Instead, the excavation team used overhead photography, a dark room set up in the local pub, and pen and ink to meticulously record the position of each stone tool and fragment of bone. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so they didn't use a total station. They didn't map anything out digitally. Oh it was all by hand. And you know, like, what's even more incredible to me is that somebody had to digitize that later. Yep. Oh probably. Or maybe God they didn't. And they just... Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe. I don't know. I don't know uh, how this data is currently stored. If you're an undergraduate at the UCL Institute of Archaeology and you've had to digitize this, let us know. Thedirtpodcast at (laughs) gmail.com. Before being able to interpret what the early humans were doing at the site, we had to understand the deposits preserving the remains context. Mm. These investigations revealed that the sediments themselves appeared to be intertidal marshland, which formed on the edge of a lagoon during a warm climate stage. 
As the early humans were butchering the horse, a high tide came in, preserving the site just as it was when the hominins moved away. Preservation like this is very rare in any archaeological period, even recent ones. The fine silts buried the site over one or more high tides without moving the artifacts or bones any appreciable distance. This meant we could reconstruct early human behavior at a revealingly high degree of resolution. My job was to piece back together the stone artifacts from the site, a process called refitting. Each stone flake removed by an ancient human will only fit uniquely to other flakes removed from the same block of flint immediately before and after it. So it's like the world's hardest jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, you're basically reverse snapping a tool. You're putting the bits back together. Refitting can give you a blow-by-blow picture of how an individual made a tool, readjusting and problem-solving, sometimes shifting position as they spent perhaps 10 or 15 minutes making each tool. From the refitting, we were able to document the manufacture of eight large cutting tools, known as hand axes or bifaces, the modification of other pre-existing tools, which means that the flakes were tiny, tiny. Like if you're sharpening a mm-hmm. an existing flint tool, you're just knocking tiny little chips off. It's ridiculous. And the, uh, the modification of other pre-existing tools and preparation of flint blocks brought to the site. So, Amber, there's a picture here in the script. And there is uh, an archaeologist kneeling down and and sort of dusting at the remains of a flint napping a pile of debris. And you can see the shape of the pile what? is in two curves. Yep. And those curves are the negative space made by the, the person who was napping. They were kneeling and napping and the debris fell kind of around their knees preserving the shadow of their knees and stayed there. So you can see basically a ghost lap of that person who was making stone tools there. I know it's wild. It's so cool. So we will include uh, links to this piece on the conversation in the show notes and you'll be able to see that picture there. So when combined with refitting of bone, our detailed study revealed a remarkably intimate insight into a day in the life of these elusive people. While all the activity centered around tool making and horse butchery, we could track detailed movement during the day. We saw that flakes were moved from piles of waste material on the edge of the site to be used in removing meat from the animal. Parts of the horse were also used as bone tools to make new tools, as revealed by incidental impressions of horse knees and legs left as shadows in the waste flakes. This suggests that the people understood the properties of organic materials. So the bone tools that Pope is referring to here are retouchers, or sometimes you, you'll hear retouchoir because it's the French typology is often used. Those are chunks of bone that have really distinctive marks where they were used to sharpen the edges of stone tools. And so Pope continues, this is incredibly valuable information because we know so little about other aspects of the Boxgrove people's lives. For example, we don't know where they slept, how they looked after their dead, or what they ate alongside horses. The archaeological record is mainly focused on where their activities accumulated durable materials, such as stone and bones, which heavily frames our view of early humans. As a result, our narratives sometimes focus on compartmentalized areas of early human life, such as ecology or technology. But a locale like the Boxgrove Horse Butchery site reminds us, when looked at in detail, that all aspects of human adaptation are mediated through our most powerful evolutionary adaptations, social life, and culture. 
And so what he's getting at here is that the the evidence from those, you know, flakes of stone and bone and sort of the patterns that show up uh, and their ability to kind of reconstruct daily activities showed that this was a very um, socially cooperative site. So it was just a basically a, an extended family group or an extended social group. I'm, I'm, I'm inferring that it was likely family, but, you know, an extended um, social group that got together to process this dead animal and, you know, everybody was working together to perform certain tasks. So the Boxgrove people, Matt Pope continues, like all other human species, were capable of sharing time, care, and knowledge in all parts of their life. These connections, even in the most routine of daily tasks, have always contributed to our success and resilience. Isn't that cool? That is so cool. That's really awesome. Yeah, the resolution, I mean, you know, it's really rare that you get such a snapshot such a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also important to to realize that the stones and bones are only a tiny part of the the possible body of evidence. So, you know, chances are, you know, maybe there can be plant materials found at Boxgrove. You know, I'm not sure, um, but that's it's only part of the picture. So sorry, did you I have a question? question? Yeah. So yeah. um so is what we're seeing at the Boxgrove Horse Brochery site that they were making stone tools on demand or were they much. like or okay. or modifying ones that they already had sharpening them or basically the flint really really good quality flint which when i say good quality it means that it um it fractures in kind of a predictable way it's mm-hmm. like nice homogeneous material it doesn't break in a weird wonky way because there's a a fault running through the nodule or stuff like so Mm -hmm. it's high quality flint and because it's right there these people would have known that that resource was there and would have exploited it yeah on demand they would have pointed the remote at the cliff and gone beep boop on demand (laughs) so let's have one more quick ad break and then we'll return to another early hominin to resolve that pesky cliffhanger from earlier This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. All right. Well, now that we're back, let's return to the question of the hominin that has the dubious honor of being the first European. Um, And so uh, this information is pulled from that same April 1st article in New Scientist, as well as a related um, New Scientist article in 2000 from 2008. Yeah. So the, the April 1st one was published in 2020. Oh, right. Yeah. So yeah. Last so they're year. they're far apart. Yeah. Uh, so they're they're far apart, but they reference the same uh, same people. Yeah. So I'm quoting here. 
It's being called the first European, rather a grand tag for a fragmentary jawbone and some worn teeth. Nevertheless, fossils have been unearthed in northern Spain that are 1.1 to 1.2 million years old and have been assigned to one of our hominin ancestors, designated Homo antecessor. Fair enough. Yep. Um, the fragments are 300,000 years older than any previously found in Europe. Jose Maria Bermudez de Castro at the National Research Center on Human Evolution in Burgos, Spain. I've is, been there. Okay. Cool. That's awesome. Oh, nice. Um, is a member of the research team that made the discovery at the Cima de Fonte cave in the Sierra de Atapuerca. He says that although the new find pushes back the hominin fossil record in Europe, there is indirect evidence that hominins arrive in Europe even earlier. Uh, so Bermudez de Castro says, Homo antecessor shows a, a unique combination of dental and skeletal features. Um, so its face was quite modern, more like ours than that of Homo heidelbergensis. So less less uh, bulgy in the brow area. Okay. Um, his colleagues have now extracted seven proteins from a homo antecessor tooth from about 860,000 years ago. This represents a major breakthrough. Uh, so Frida Welker at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark says, uh, quote, we are able to reliably retrieve ancient human protein sequences over the past two million years. Yeah, so this isn't DNA, it's analysis of sequences of protein chains, but it works very similarly to DNA analysis because those protein chains are unique to certain species. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. By comparing the homo antecessor proteins from those of other hominins, the team has found that the species was closely related to the last common ancestors of humans, Neanderthals and Denisovans. However, the researchers cannot tell if it actually was the ancestor. So um, Enrico Capolini, also at the University of Copenhagen, says, quote, it is too early to conclude this confidently. Yeah, because we just don't have all the evidence yeah. and, you know, probably won't ever have all the evidence, but someday we'll have more. Oh. <laughs> just, <laughs> it's a hopeful thought. Um, yeah, so our mystery ends with even more mystery since the origins of Homo antecessor are still unknown. So even if the species is our grandparent with Neanderthals and Denisovans as our cousins, we still have a muddled picture of the genealogy before that point. Yeah, the muddle in the middle. <laughs> And we, we can't solve all the mysteries for you listeners, so you'll just have to stay tuned in case new evidence is found. And, and with that, that's going to do it for this episode. And we're excited to travel into the future with you, and we'll be back in your ears with new content next week, which you can find on Apple Podcasts. Hey, hey, leave us some reviews. Thank you. Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you like to listen. Yeah, and until then, you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast, on Twitter at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram at The Dirt Pod. And don't forget to reserve your seat for our live show on yeah. February 18th. It's going to be a ton of fun and you'll get to see our faces matched with our voices. That'll be weird. <laughs> and all of that, you can register on our website, thedirtpod.com. And it is newly updated. So go check out that spiffy new website look, oh, especially, the, especially the about page. It's good stuff. It's got that new website smell. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> a little pine tree hanging from it. Oh. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we're so excited for stuff we have coming up in this new year. And listeners, thank you all so much for listening and making this show possible. Couldn't yeah. do it without you. Yeah. Well, now we're in season four. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? 
We'll we haven't jumped the shark yet, I hope. Back next week with season five. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You can also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.